Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thanks, everyone, for coming out uh, in the rain. I know how challenging it can be to take a short trip in the rain. And uh, um, in the early morning, too, after, after a holiday. So thanks for coming out. We're also uh, live online right now. And this program will be recorded and archived uh, uh, online. Uh, the purpose of the event today is look at, to look at Taiwan in light of America's new trade policy. I don't need to go into a lot of detail, I think, to explain where we are in that trade policy. It's one that's pretty obvious, focused on trade deficits and tariffs on American importers and uh, confrontation with our trading partners, et cetera, with an occasional deal. And we saw the, the deal with the Mexicans and the Canadians, and we're working on some other deals, so there's, there's some positive out there. Um, but we want to look at how this whole thing affects uh, Taiwan and how those effects may change uh, over time. Uh, there's also a good deal of opportunity, I think, that uh, that may come to bear over the next couple of years, and we want to look at that as well. In fact, that's where we're going to start this morning uh, with Riley Walters. Uh, Riley is Heritage Foundation's analyst for Asian economy and technology. He's just published a new paper focused on uh, high-level dialogue between U.S. And, and Taiwan and the need for greater economic cooperation that reports outside uh, for you to take uh, when, when you leave, but he's going to speak to that uh, this morning. Then we're going to turn to uh, C.C. Chen. Uh, C.C. is TechRow's deputy representative for, for economics here in Washington. It's such a pleasure to have him to Heritage. He knows so much about these issues, having been at MOEA for probably longer than he cares to remember, but at least 30 years or so, almost 30 years. Um, it's great to have his expertise here at our disposal on a regular basis, but particularly good to have him here on our stage to comment on Riley's work and, uh, and some of the other challenges that maybe he sees in the economic relationship. And then last but certainly not least, uh, Rupert Hammond Chambers, president of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council. Uh, Rupert works with Heritage quite a bit, and we probably have him here at least once a year to talk about some, some area in his, uh, his expertise. Um, Rupert has been president of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council for more than 15 years. Longer than he cares to admit. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, okay, that's fair. Uh, and, and with the council generally, I think for more than 20 years, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so I wouldn't admit that either. Um, but with that, let me, let me turn it over to Riley. He'll get us started, and then we'll, we'll go through, hopefully have a good deal of time for, for uh, conversation afterwards. Thank you. Uh, good morning to everyone in the audience and everyone online. Uh, as Walter mentioned, today we released a report uh, that I wrote um, and I'll, I'll talk briefly about it uh, in t uh, my presentation today. But the title of that, which you can find online or outside, is A Neglected Partner in Asia, the U.S. Should Strengthen Economic Cooperation with Taiwan. Um, 
you know, that today a lot of the talk around just not not just trade or mostly trade is um, definitely thick with rhetoric. Um, and again, most, it is mostly focused on trade. Actually, um, what we try and do in this paper is expand beyond just the trade relationship. Um, it's not just you know all about deficits or uh, trading in certain kind of goods. It's it's about the economic partnership in large and uh, trade investment. Um, areas for cooperation and such. And so I'm going to try and touch on a lot of that. Um, a lot of the concern or what you hear a lot of uh, out of Washington these days is so focused on China and either the economic or strategic threat they, they might present and why that's bad for America. But, you know, what we should also focus on is if we really consider China an economic threat, um, what that means for our partners and allies as well, and the need for greater cooperation, uh, and not just with the bigger partners, but uh, you know the ones who are not first, second, or third, but perhaps those are f who are fourth, fifth, and sixth as well. Um, the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is is strong and has been strong for the last several decades. Uh, last year, Americans and Taiwanese traded about eighty-seven billion worth of goods and services. And I say Americans and Taiwanese because it's not the American government and the Taiwanese government that are trading these goods and services. Um, it is the people themselves. And that's an important thing to note uh, when we're talking about trade. <clears throat> so that made it our 12th largest partner last year. Uh, not only does Taiwan, uh, U.S. and Taiwan have a strong trading relationship, Taiwan in, uh, also invests heavily within the United States. In fact, you can say there's an unbalanced relationship there where Taiwan invests much more in the U.S. these days than the U.S. invests in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is also a great source for IP revenue. You know, uh, companies made almost $4.5 billion in licensing revenue, uh, licensing IP to Taiwan last year, um, meaning it's, it's not just, you know, um, you know it, it, it's a place for revenue, it's a place for cooperation, it's a, it's a place for uh, strength and in investment. Um, but like many other countries in the region, uh, Taiwan has grown increasingly dependent on its trade relationship with China. Uh, trade with China for Taiwan is almost one-fourth of its total trade, double uh, what it, it trades with the United States. Um, we can kind of go into the depths of that, uh, I think, in the Q&A. But um, the concern is that China... Uh, Taiwan is becoming increasingly economic dependent on China. And, and China itself is using its economic weight, not just with Taiwan, but international partners to leverage things in its favor. Um, <clears throat> last year, you know, China, uh, China's Taiwan uh, Affairs Office launched what's called the 31 Measures as a way to create greater in uh, integration between the Taiwanese and Chinese people, both economically and socially. Um, other provinces followed suit. Fujian province had its 60 measures. Uh, Shandong had its 60, 56 measures and so on, all as a way to incentivize Taiwan uh, individuals and companies to uh, move to mainland China, invest in mainland China, basically leave Taiwan as, in, in a way. And um, <clears throat> it's not just greater dependence in China. Uh, you know, the rhetoric is that, you know, obviously they want to build greater cooperation with, I think, what they call um, uh, comrades, no, not comrades, um, cohorts of sorts, and patriots. Um, 
as you know, as as the main tagline. But there's so many more levels to this, as we've seen a lot with Chinese policy. Um, one is, of course, China de- developing its own indigenous technologies, uh, part of its Made in China 2025 initiative. Um, as the of the 31 measures, the first one is having Taiwanese invest in the Made in China 2025 initiative because China has a innovation problem, and the, if they can't get it from the United States, then they want to get it from Taiwan. Uh, and you know, while they're getting it from the Taiwanese, might as well have the Taiwanese become more economically dependent on China. Um, <clears throat> now, China alone, uh, sorry, Taiwan alone isn't the only one that sort of has to deal with the you know the partner to the north or northwest. Um, there are other countries that are feeling the economic influence that China presents. Um, there are recent reports that Australia backed away from a free trade agreement with uh, Taiwan because of pressure from Beijing. Uh, there's also the recently uh, soon to go into force comprehensive and progressive uh, agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which should go into effect uh, by the end of this year. Um, that none of the countries who are a member of the current CPTPP uh, want to support Taiwan's accession into the deal because of fears of angering Beijing. Uh, ironically, of course, the CPTPP, I think by many, saw it as a way to counter China. So um, the irony of not allowing a country that China doesn't want in, in the hopes of not angering China for a deal that might anger China, um, it, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, so anyways, the, the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, <clears throat> it's good, but I, I think in a way it's fallen by the wayside. Uh, we have our, our highest level of economic dialogue that we have with Taiwan right now is the trade and investment framework agreement. Uh, but the the TIFA, as we call it, hasn't met for over two years now. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with political reasons. Um, either perhaps it's the new administration, perhaps it's, you know, bureaucratic issues, uh, you know, bureaucracy issues that the bureaucracy has had that uh, the – non-tariff measures reducing uh, the import of beef and pork into Taiwan um, has stalled these talks. Nevertheless, um, I think it's important to sort of push back the, uh, push, push these aside and move forward. And so that's why we're recommending that the White House establish a new high-level economic dialogue with Taiwan. Um, this would be similar to what we have with Japan. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be at the vice president level, obviously, but uh, it could certainly be something that the U.S. Trade Representative and Secretary of Commerce could lead uh, with their counterparts in the executive yuan. Um, and not just, of course, to address these outstanding trade issues, but areas for cooperation. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Just like the U.S.-Japan dialogue, uh, this dialogue could focus on building uh, trade investment rules and addressing disputes uh, cooperation on economic and structural policies and sectoral cooperation. Um, this could, you know, address emerging uh, areas for cooperation like the Digital Economy Forum that was uh, that met uh, last year between the American Institute of Taiwan and the National Development Council and very well in line with uh, Taipei's um, new southbound policy. Um, at the end of all this is not just a greater U.S.-Taiwan uh, relationship, a sort of a buffer between the dependence Taiwan has on China, um, but you know, a, a, a building of confidence between U.S. and Taiwanese uh, 
consumers and businesses. Because again, um, in the midst of all the trade rhetoric, the one thing that we've seen growing is uncertainty between businesses, uh, not just in the US, not just in China and Taiwan, but South Korea, uh, Japan, all across Southeast Asia. And so building greater, uh, greater relationships and removing some of this uncertainty will definitely be a boon for the future. Um, I, I would hope that the economic dialogue after some time could produce uh, what we've seen as 30 years long overdue is a free trade agreement with Taiwan. Um, it's certainly something that uh, would be beneficial for both our countries. And again, um, Heritage has been advocating for a U.S.-Taiwan free trade agreement for over 30 years now. So it would be great to finally see that get through. So with that, I'm going to end my remarks. That's great. Thank you, Riley. I think, you know, one important thing to point out about Riley's paper and, and how we're addressing these issues is that we're not looking for um, some sort of managed trade outcome between the U.S. and Taiwan. It's really an effort to allow the market to work better, to remove market distortions, whether it's in Taiwan's own economy or the trade between U.S. and Taiwan, but also to get past the distortions that are created by not allowing Taiwan to engage in this sort of uh, economic diplomacy uh, that that China can engage in. Uh, for example, that leaves it, leaves it unnaturally connected to China. The market's going to determine that it be connected to China in any regard because of the proximity and many other issues. Um, but by allowing it to participate fully in economic diplomacy, you will enable the market to be the, the driver in, in the way that it establishes its, ec its economic relationships. CC, up to you. Uh, thank you. Good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Walter, for the last words you, I pick up from you. Uh, now the situation for Taiwan's foreign trade actually is not 100% market force because there are so many uh, free trade agreements in the world, especially in the region like uh, Singapore, like Korea, they have uh, access to the U.S. market. While Taiwan, uh, because of uh, political constraint, we uh, sort of, I, I highly comment uh, Riley's paper, this is an excellent paper. Uh, it's, Taiwan has been uh, put uh, in the back burner for such a long time, which uh, the market force becomes uh, adapt itself, and then now it's unnaturally uh, for Taiwan's uh, market access and foreign trade relations. Uh, uh, on that note, I'd like to uh, uh, pick up from Rady. Uh, actually, uh, just make a, a point. Uh, as Rady said, the Taiwan's investment in U.S. is four times the U.S. investment in Taiwan. And why is that? It's because a heritage. We are here in Heritage Foundation, and that's a heritage. Uh, I'd like to also uh, add on the what Rady said, uh, an economic dialogue with Taiwan, and then that should lead to a trade agreement with Taiwan. Uh, as uh, Walter said, that would build up the confidence of Taiwan's uh, business community and build up confidence for the regional the, the business communities. Let me say why an agreement. Uh, since World War II, U.S. has led the Western industrialized countries to establish the global trade order. And that being said, everybody understood what would be the uh, Bretton Woods uh, institutions and also the GATT and then the WTO. That's the basic. Then there are advanced classes, who, which are the free agreements. But trade agreement is much more than economics. It's about political. 
it's about geopolitical, it's about geoeconomic, it's about value, it's about uh, the regime, about the paradigm of trade. So that's why in the trade agreement, we see labor, we see cybersecurity, we see export control, we see investment. Uh, we see so much values and regimes and the rules there. And we make trade agreements because we want to make rules where we can under like rules to operate our trade. And because uh, there's no agreement for Taiwan to reach to US and this leadership just missing that link. Uh, and that I will submit uh, if US is going to make trade agreement as uh, the administration, President Trump said, free, fair, and recipro reciprocal trade. Then we talk about free. Uh, Taiwan is economically complement to the US economy. That's because of the heritage I just said. Uh, now the APEC leaders meeting will be held in PNG and the representative of our president is Mr. Morris Chang. I'd like to highlight this, Mr. Morris Chang, Dr. Morris Chang, I should say, I'm sorry. Uh, it's because I wanna make a point. Uh, in the 1970, the semiconductor, now we talk about AI, we talk about big data, we talk about the future of the economy, all come to one product, which is the semiconductor. And semiconductor can highlight the US-Taiwan relations. In the 1970s, Taiwan sent a team came to U.S. to learn how to manufacture semiconductor. Then in, in the early 1980s, people like Dr. Morris Chan, they, they went back to Taiwan and to start the, the industry. In the 1990s, Taiwanese people like Jason Huang, who is now the CEO and founder of NVIDIA, people like Linda Su, who is the CEO of AMD, they came to U.S. and they found the U.S. semiconductor companies. It became a very mutually complementary to each other. So Taiwanese companies and business industries actually is always in the supply chain of the U.S. is complement to the U.S. And the, the market is, is just connect to the U.S. as a free market, a free access. And then uh, talk about the uh, geoeconomically, uh, we need the rule of law. And Taiwan has been ranked by the Freedom House as the freest country in the world, by the Heritage Foundation as the uh, number 13 of the freest economy in the index, ranked by Transparency International as the least corrupt country in the region. So this is uh, such a good ally and uh, uh, could be could conduct a fair trade with the US. Plus on top of that, the average salary and wage in Taiwan is only second to Japan in the region. So that will also treat the U.S. laborers fair. And also talk about reciprocity. Then people will ask, so we have a trade agreement with Taiwan, so what's good for U.S.? Well, as Riley said very well, it's a confidence building mechanism. For the region, for the people, for the business community, know what the U.S. want. I consider myself very privileged to be able to be posted in Washington in this time, very interesting time. I'm witnessing a trade paradigm shift. Uh, now, the free, free trade must com combine with fair trade, combine with the rule of law and market economy, which we support uh, with whole heart. So with that, I wanna pitch uh, 
we, we look at the heritage between U.S. and Taiwan. We look at the complementarity between U.S. and Taiwan. We look at Taiwan as one of the staunch allies in the like-minded like group. I fully support what Riley said and Walter said. Uh, we should have a trade agreement between <coughs> U.S. and Taiwan. Thank you. Thank you, CC. Uh, just, to, just to sort of clarify from Heritage's perspective, we're fighting the paradigm change. <laughs> for, for us, fair trade is free trade. Free trade is fair trade. Um, but uh, we can talk about that much, much more in the, in the Q&A here. Let me turn it over to Rupert. Thank you, Walter, <clears throat> and, uh, and Heritage for having me today. And thank you to my, uh, the two speakers who came before me. I, I absolutely agree with, with, uh, with both of what they drove at. Uh, like this institution and uh, the minister, Taiwan's Ministry of Economic Affairs, the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council also has uh, been a lead voice for a broad uh, free trade agreement between the U.S. and Taiwan for both economic and political reasons. It is an imperative. And perhaps um, we're at a point with this administration and with the Tsai government where a deal can be done. We'll see. Uh, there are, remain some parochial issues that have to date been extremely difficult to overcome, particularly in the, in the, in the agricultural, agriculture sector. And I also worry a wee bit about moving goalposts, which is should Taiwan address those issues that new conditions would, re, would appear um, to, uh, to get in the way of a trade agreement. So um, diligence would be important if, in fact, we gained traction. So, um, you know, we, we've touched a wee bit on, on where we are. Um, we're stuck uh, again. Uh, the TIFA is in limbo again um, and actually appears to have been downgraded. Um, we, we appear to be back to no TIFA until the ag issues are resolved. We've got Rick here, so maybe he can challenge me on that premise. But that, that seems to be where, where we are again, regrettably. Uh, the TIFA is an extremely modest platform for engagement and, in my view, has never been, has never been commensurate with the, with the depth and breadth of the relationship between US and, U.S. and Taiwan. And there is, without question, the need for something more significant. Um, the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council also argues across the U.S. government that we end the practice within our departments of having Taiwan uh, as a... As a, a that having Taiwan as a subset of any China portfolio and to break it out, because what invariably happens, of course, is China sucks both from a time standpoint as well as a political standpoint, most of the air out of any room. And to have Taiwan as a subset of, 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 of that room uh, makes it less likely that the United States will be able to calibrate its interests with Taiwan uh, on their own merits, as opposed to a subset of other considerations with China. And I think on the trade front, um, that is absolutely true, as we so often hear that um, we're far too busy with China to really do anything with Taiwan. So um, it would be good to see Taiwan be broken out and, and given more bandwidth within the government um, because it's such an important trading partner. Um, it, within Taiwan itself, um, ta Taiwan, too, is, is, is very much responsible as well for where we are on trade relations. The agricultural issues that get in the way of our relationship with Taiwan also get they're, – they're different, but it's agricultural issues that also get in the way of Taiwan-Japan relations, um, mostly as a function of the food bans that remain post the Fukushima disaster. Um, Taiwan, in fact, had an opportunity 
when Tsai Ing-wen took over and Abe was uh, um, obviously already in charge of Japan. They made an offer to Taiwan if you if you allow food to flow into Fuku uh, from Fukushima and the surrounding prefectures back into Taiwan, if you lift your ban, we'll do a free trade agreement with you. Um, but Taiwan couldn't get it done and the opportunity passed. So, um, you know, there are opportunities that are, that, are, that are popping up. However, we shouldn't underestimate the domestic politics involved in these agricultural issues. And, and it's not really ag actually in Taiwan, you know, really at the core of it, it's food safety. That's really the dynamic at play domestically within politics. And the Taiwanese people have some fairly legitimate beefs when it comes to food safety, as they've had some really uh, awful scandals um, that have resulted in the loss of life um, related to food safety. Um, in fairness, mostly related to China-related um, imports, but nevertheless, um, it's a hot topic and, and a highly contentious one, and it makes it hard. It's also blunt force trauma in Taiwan. And what I mean by that is, is that when the KMT is in charge, the DPP beats them up over food safety and agricultural issues. And conversely, when the DPP is in charge, the Guomindang does it. So it, it, it regrettably has become a, a significant political um, uh, you know, hammer um, to, to beat up the ruling party with, which only, only makes it more difficult, really, to, to push through. Um, overall, Taiwan's economy is growing 2.2 um, to uh, somewhere between 25 to 3%. It's being downgraded a wee bit, but mostly in, in, the, in the data and the analysis that I'm looking at for people I respect, it's still hard to quantify that the US-China trade confrontation is having any significant impact on, on Taiwan yet. But there does seem to be significant concern that that will happen at some point in time. Um, to the, the, the growth numbers are being revised down a wee bit. But, but if, if we're clear, the U.S. is going great guns, but the rest of the world is actually not growing that, that fast. And the Europeans continue to have their anemic growth rates of 1% to 1.5%, 2 if they're really excited. But uh, they're, 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 they remain bogged down with high taxes and heavy regulation. Um, and uh, you're not seeing growth really being driven from much from other parts of the world. China is also cooled. Uh, Southeast Asia continues to do well. And in fact, I was in Vietnam last week and they are absolutely cooking. Um, so uh, as, as a function, I might add somewhat of, of, um, of, of direct investment from Taiwan as a function of the shift in the supply chain. So let's talk a wee bit about what's going on for Taiwan with the US-China trade confrontation. Uh, broadly speaking, both governments share uh, a similar concern over over-reliance on China and the need to diversify the supply chain. Um, the supply chain candidly was shifting all before Mr. Trump and, and, and Tsai Ing-wen took over. Um, the, that was being driven um, initially by rising costs in eastern China and a, a desire on the part of certainly OEM and ODM manufacturers to find the new next location for low-cost manufacturing. I mentioned Vietnam already, excellent example, Indonesia. Um, even India is becoming more attractive. And I've participated in conversations recently where Taiwan companies are even starting to think about East Africa. So you, you, have, this, the, you have companies looking for, the companies themselves as a function of cost and the, the, press, on, the press on cost, um, looking for new places to manufacture. Um, uh, so th this is a good thing. And um, it also plays politically, of course, because Taiwan is deeply concerned over its economic over-reliance on China, just as we share that concern here in the U.S. 
And and at the core of it is a highly charged political issue, and that's uh, China's predatory trade practices as they relate to intellectual property and trade secrets. And I, 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 last week, I, I was in Hanoi at the beginning of the week, and I was in Taipei and Kaohsiung at the, in the end of the week, and uh, just taking every opportunity just to continue to stress how unbelievably toxic that the IP trade secrets is here in the States, just how uh, that we have reached our our um, we the end of our tether, as my grandmother would say, um, on on uh, on IP and trade secrets, and the, these this issue absolutely must be dealt with at the core of any U.S.-China trade deal, um, and it and it, sh it that should be understood as Asian countries think about what's going on for the United States, and they attempt to calibrate whether the U.S. is approaching any kind of interest in a trade deal with the Chinese, what that would need to look like, so. Taiwan continues to move forward. The trade, the, we're seeing the supply chain shift. We think that's a good that, that's a good thing. And um, we had uh, Taitra's um, Taiwan's trade promotion arm. The vice chairman was here just in the summertime. CC and his colleagues did a fabulous job um, uh, uh, moving them around town. And in in a, in a more intimate luncheon we had with him, he shared with us some data on what uh, the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Taitra is seeing in respect to outbound trade flows from Taiwan. And what's interesting is, is that clearly there's still money going into China, of course, but there has been a significant shift for official green-lighted uh, trade flows away from China. And I, I think basically the way to think about this is you're not going to see Taiwan companies knock down bricks and mortar in China. That's not going to happen. They're going to stay there. But what you are potentially going to see is the money that might have been allocated towards new bricks and mortar in new sites in China is now being shifted and, and, and looked at outside of China. So legacy investments by Taiwan businesses within the PRC are going to stay, and those, those sites may indeed see some inbound investment to expand them. But the prospect of new bricks and mortar on new sites in new parts of the country is less likely as Taiwan businesses look outside of China, and I believe in Southeast Asia and South Asia are, the, are, are really the primary areas that we're going to see this, and to some extent here in the States, although I believe that mostly you're going to see that around um, uh, our ability to, fight, to provide good infrastructure and cheap energy. So petrochemicals is a good example, I think, where you might see Taiwan um, uh, play a role, although we do have this high-profile investment up in Wisconsin by Terry Guo and his colleagues. How much time do I still have? Keep going. Sweet, I'm on a roll. Um, so, um, Mr. Trump's desire to see the supply chain actually bend 180 around and come back into the U.S. I, I do not believe that that's going to happen, and nothing that we see at the U.S. Taiwan Business Council at Bar Group Asia leads me to believe that 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 is going to happen. But the supply chain is shifting. That's a fact, um, uh, based on the data that, that I'm seeing, and I believe it's a healthy uh, it's it's a healthy shift. Um, within Taiwan, uh, for Taiwan companies, it's more of a mixed bag, candidly. Um, there are certainly many, many willing to put investment in Southeast Asia, um, whether due to rising costs in eastern China or geopolitical risk. So that's, that's all good. But others are, are becoming increasingly, um, they're becoming increasingly more outspoken about their interest in, in remaining more aligned with China. And I think here we want to take a look at the Micron UMC case that's been in the newspaper of late. Um, I, I think it's a fascinating case, and it's certainly not the first time that we've seen intellectual property trade secrets issues involving Taiwan and China. 
Um, there was an, the, a, about a decade ago, we had an extremely high profile uh, case involving Taiwan Semiconductor and SMIC, um, which resulted in a huge win for TSMC, over a billion dollars. SMIC was also forced to transfer over 10% of its company to TSMC. It was a massive trade, I, trade secrets IP violation case, which, which uh, Taiwan in the United States won, or TSMC in the U.S. won, in a, US, in a California court against China. Um, so uh, the, 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 the Micron UMC case is a good one, because to me, it really, it, it, it encapsulates, it encapsulates, Am I getting that road right? Thank you. Encapsulates. Thank you. Um, encapsulates um, a lot of what's going on here. Trade secrets and IP, for sure, right at the core. You've got U.S., Taiwan, and China. Absolutely. All three players. It's driven by the U.S. legal process. Um, U.S. and the just, U.S. Justice Department, right? Uh, you've got critical technology um, involved in a critical sector, the semiconductor sector. And you have, and you have a Taiwan company... UMC that straddles the Taiwan Strait, right? And it appears in this case to be pushing more of its chips into the PRC side of the relationship as it grapples with relevancy in Taiwan in the shadow of Taiwan Semiconductor, Micron and the US chip sector. So it seems to be backing more of the, of, of the, of the, the, the China side. For Taiwan domestically, that's kind of an issue because UMC is not without friends in the Li Yuan in the parliament as well as to a somewhat lesser extent within the executive branch and is capable of bringing pressure on the government to try and taper US uh, Taiwan support for the US position in this case. So stay tuned because I think this is a dynamic that we're going to see more of. A lot more of, I can't really say, I don't think so, but just some high profile cases involving companies like UMC who feel that their interests in the longer term are, are, are more based on backing the China horse than backing the Taiwan US horse. And it will create domestic pressure on the Taiwan government to curb its enthusiasm for um, a more traditional support of the US-Taiwan dynamic. Moving forward, um, I, I, I have a, a fear. Um, we worked extremely hard as a community in cooperation with Rick and his colleagues at AIT who were hugely significant in this legislation in, uh, in, in Taiwan, as well as the companies that we represent like Corning and Micron on the trade secrets legislation that the, that the legislature passed. It's good legislation. Most of what we wanted is on the books. We certainly have some issues with the application of that legislation and the criminalization of those who are caught. There tends to be somewhat of a tendency to say, well, if, if this company steals money, well, it's not really, you know, yes, it's yes, it's wrong and against the law, but we're not going to put anybody in prison. We're just going to take some money from you and we're going to give it to them and it'll all be fine. We need to see more uh, uh, in, the, in the criminal code. We need to see more willingness on the part of prosecutors and judges in Taiwan to put people in prison for this trade secrets IP violation. But I am concerned. I have a fear that a, a, that a constituency or a growing constituency within Taiwan, I'll bet a minority, will start to pressure change, pressure for changes in the trade secrets legislation that has been put in place. And I, I would absolutely point to UMC and MediaTek as two companies that I believe would like to see a, a, a watering down of the trade secrets legislation. And I'm worried about that, candidly. That's something that we're going to continue to talk to our companies about and continue to talk with Rick and his colleagues about um, to make sure that we're, we're on top of that. 
a couple of other thoughts and then I'm going to wrap up. Um, my own view is just, you know, just stepping back a wee bit from just Taiwan. My own view on the U.S.-China trade confrontation. I don't really like the word war. I think it's it, it, that's overly dramatic. It's, it's not a war, um, uh, but it, it confrontation is is a better word for me in my view. Um, that that uh, um, as long as the U.S. economy continues to expand significantly, I think Mr. Trump ha and his colleagues have the bandwidth necessary to continue to pursue. Um, the, the policies that they feel um, are going to best end China's predatory trade practices. I do not believe that Mr. Trump and our country started this. I do believe, though, that he, he and his colleagues have, are the first administration to come in and really decide to do something about it. So as long as we continue to expand at a relatively decent clip, I think that we're going to continue to see this confrontation. If our growth starts to slow dramatically... I think domestic pressure in the U.S. Um, will will uh, will rise, and I believe, particularly if unemployment were to start to climb again, that uh, that that uh, that potentially Mr. Trump will be under more domestic pressure to to reach an accommodation with China, um, and of course we don't know what the next administration will look like. He might be reelected. We might have somebody else who can say at this juncture. Um, the other thing I wanted to just mention, and this is just, I, I, I want to convey this because I think it's a good opportunity to convey. And I see some um, younger faces in our audience today, and I, I want to convey an experience I've had over the 20 plus years I've been doing this. CC already mentioned that Morris Jung, the head of the founder and head of Taiwan Semiconductor, is representing Taiwan at APEC. And that's great. And there's a lot of tradition over the last 30 years for Taiwan's senior economic uh, business leaders to represent the country in international forums as a sort of hybrid economic business leader and ambassador, sort of political ambassador. Sadly, that period is sort of coming to an end. Morris is the sort of end of a generation. Uh, people like Jeffrey Gu of China Trust, Stan Sherv, Asa, uh, Zhang Yongfa from Evergreen, Mar uh, uh, Matthew Miao of MyTac. Um, they all over time had played a lead role in representing Taiwan at different, in different ways um, and at different events and in, 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 in different forums. Um, and it, it, it's a tremendous benefit to Taiwan, both economically and politically. Regrettably, we don't see that ha happening now in the next generation of leaders coming through. Uh, it's an observation, maybe a little criticism, a more a regret, I think. I'm not really criticizing. I mean, people make their own decisions. But, but it, it's more a regret that the next generation of business leaders coming through in Taiwan are not of the same ilk and don't have the same interest in playing that role. And I think the country, is, as a consequence, um, uh, loses, and, and, and that's regrettable. <clears throat> there is a broader conversation in here. I'm going to wrap up right now. There is a broader conversation in here. Maybe we can get into it in a little Q&A if anybody has an interest in it, about what's going on generationally with uh, the, the power transition within companies that were formed in the 70s and 80s and 90s that are embedded in the supply chain and how the, tr the leadership transition, transition is going on within their families um, or not, as the case might be, um, and, and the problems that it's causing for restructuring and competitiveness within, the, within Taiwan. Um, and I'd be happy to get into that a wee bit if anybody has an interest. Thank you very much. That was great, Rupert. Thank you. You never disappoint for your expertise on these things. Thank you very much for that. Um, I had a couple questions for each of our panelists. I wanted to start with Rupert because you you um, talked about the supply chain changing in the region 
and you um, cited sort of an ongoing process in that regard. It's happening with Japan, too. Japan has been diversifying out of China for several years now. Um, and, and actually, the, the paper that Riley uh, wrote, he's got a chart that shows Taiwanese investment in China declining steadily since 2010. So it's something that's been ongoing, and it's largely driven by market forces. <clears throat> Uh, but but I think you you left a little bit undone the end of that. That is, so how much of it is being driven by market forces, and how much of it is being driven by uh, the Trump administration's trade war? And to the extent that it is driven by non-economic, non-market forces, which I would classify, you know, the, the trade confrontation that Trump has initiated as being a non-market force, as uh, we don't really know what exactly is motivating it. Uh, is it good to the extent that it's not market-driven? Is that also good to see the supply chain uh, changing if it's being changed for uh, by forces other than the market? One, I'm going to start with the end and say, without without question, it's a good it's a good dynamic. <clears throat> I, I, I frankly, I struggle really to come up with a significant negative reason for the supply chain not shifting out of China. Well, diversifying out of China. I am not suggesting that it's going to shift entirely out of China. Nor really should it. Um, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't want to be one of those people who is reflexively negative about China or its economic... Oh, but, the, so the, but that's poli poli yes. political, not economic. Yes, I, but I, I do think if we go back to the, 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 the MOEA TITRA um, data, and I, I'm sorry, I don't have it at my fingertips, but we can work with CC. I know you've got plenty on your plate, CC, already, but we can <laughs> somewhere we can find that data. It, it absolutely shows that, that um, you know, yes... The, the, the rising in costs in eastern China since 2010, okay, so that's that started to change the picture. But you do get a spike with the, with the Trump administration, and, I, and in my view, that's the geostrategic risk being taken into, into place, along with the election of Tsai Ing-wen as well, and the, and the, and the, the ending of, of Ma Ying-jeou, the Guomindang administration's efforts to um, create a different dynamic with China through economic and cultural engagement. Um, that ended poorly, frankly, in Taiwan as a domestic issue. Um, the Taiwanese people voted overwhelmingly for a different vision for China policy, primarily, I, I think, because the Chinese did not deliver on their end. They just pocketed Mars concessions and just kept on doing what they were going to do. Um, so I, I, I think the, the data is there. We need to go and find it. I'm sorry I don't have it at my fingertips. But the geostrategic risk and the pressure brought by the Trump administration and the Tsai administration, both directly on their companies as well as through the policies that they're pursuing, has accelerated this trend. And I, 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 anyway. And that's a good thing. For I, I think unquestionably it's a good thing. So let's, let's touch on not just why it is to good to diversify out of China because we have this, these predatory trade practices. The, company, the countries that the in, inbound flows are flowing into are natural potential allies both for our republic as well as for Taiwan. And, and um, I look at Vietnam. I mean, I was, it was an extraordinary, last, the, the Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday last week in Hanoi, I was struck one by how extraordinarily pro-US they are, which was, I mean, not really for today, but that, that, was, that was striking. But also the potential for Vietnam to be an important ally for the United States is already being realized. And also for Taiwan too, the engagement. Maybe not politically and militarily, but certainly economic and economically and culturally. Indonesia, too. There are some extremely exciting things happening for Taiwan and for the United States. So those trade flows have an opportunity to reinforce 
particularly in the absence of our membership in TPP and other trade agreements, to reinforce that the United States and Taiwan are true two long-term partners that Southeast Asia can rely on. Thank you. Um, I want to come to Riley in a second to maybe offer some perspective on that, too, and, and uh, some uh, reaction to, to your comments. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask uh, Cece, um, in some ways, you know, I open this up with sort of a negative, positive uh, uh, dichotomy there. There's some negative and there's some positive. In fact, our discussion so far has been far more positive than I anticipated. <laughs> so I wanted to come back to a very specific issue, and that's the steel tariffs and the impact on Taiwan and how much um, take up there has been from the administration to try to spare Taiwan this, this problem. Because obviously, Taiwan is not a threat to U.S. security. Uh, have, have you had any success in, in, in making that suggestion to the administration? And what's the impact that, that it's having already on Taiwan's industry? This is a great question. Uh, well, uh, first of all, from the uh, information we collected, uh, the Trump administration is still tariffed on 232 uh, security issues, uh, mostly is to combat the overcapacity, uh, namely from China. And, but the, the uh, tactic uh, the administration employs is use a, a global uh, tariff. So everyone would have to prevent the overcapacity. Uh, importing from China, then export to the US. That's what we learned from the, the information we have. Well, for Taiwan, uh, we are not exempt from the tariff. So we pay the 25% tariff. And our export to US dropped about 12%. So uh, we got hit by the by the tariff. Uh, we hope this this will come to an end uh, very quickly, as the Chinese export to U.S. has dropped. Uh, I think about two percent only. Mm -hmm. The U.S. import was still only two percent from China, mm -hmm. and now European Union is uh, uh, imposing a safeguard measures uh, on global steel capacity. And uh, I think China is uh, also, uh, what we read from the information, China is also reducing its capacity. So we, we hope this will come to an, an end very soon because U.S. Uh, business community also suffers. The, the uh, uh, Ford just said that they lost one billion because of steel, steel tariff. So I think uh, the trend, the trajectory should be sometime this will come to a kind, kind of settlement. Good for the U.S. business. Good for the world. Okay, great. Thank you. And then, and then, Riley, I, d I did want to come back to you on this question that Rupert addressed. That is, um, supply chains sort of being allowed to form by virtue of market forces uh, versus political manipulation of supply chains to geopolitical ends. Um, I think in Rupert, I don't want to mischaracterize Rupert, but it sounds like it doesn't matter either way. It's, it's good. But I wanted in, to get... In this instance. Yeah. It, there may be instances where it's not. Right. So I'm not saying it's a blanket yes. Right. I'm just saying in this instance, I believe that it is reinforcing a trend that in my view as an analyst is a positive one. Okay. I hear you. Uh, so I wanted to get Riley's perspective on the same issue. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily bad to... If if a trend you know is a little bit trendier than it previously was, um, I think my my issue is when it's um, 
when it's when it's not a, a market force when it, when it is more politically driven because as you mentioned already you know there there are still a lot of these sort of legacy investments in in China from Taiwanese companies and um, you know there are some companies that might not have the necessary funds to you know necessarily divest out of China and so for those companies and those investments there will be marginally decreasing returns there will be these political costs that they have to deal with that they can't address in the short term to offset the the increasing cost from all this politics and so you know for them i'm i'm a little bit more worried and um you know it's if the trend is divest uh, di um you know uh, divestment then that's fine uh but the political costs the costs that are the sort of arbitrary costs that are increased from the political tension i think is unnecessary um one thing i i am worried about is and i think a lot of companies are as well is when the trade conflict is going to end. I think that's the, that's the question up in the air. Um, no one really knows for sure. You know, Walter mentioned, do we really even know what the administration wants from China? Um, I think that's up in the air as well. I mean, there is the potential for a, per, perhaps an armistice between the two sides when President Trump and President Xi meet at the G20 later this month. Um, but even then, the question is, so the, the tariffs that are already in place, not just on Chinese imports, but on steel and aluminum, uh, as well, um, you know, how long, how much longer are those going to stick into place? Um, if they can come to an armistice, that's good for at least the, you know, addressing the uncertainty portion in the short to medium term. That way the companies can sort of put into their, their you know, their analysis, the cost from these tariffs. Um, but even then it's, will they come to an agreement? And if so, how long will that last? Because, you know, it's only two years to the next presidential election. And, um, I think I think it's still up in the air. Thank you. Okay, so I wanted to open it up to questions from the audience. Please uh, identify <clears throat> yourself. We've got a microphone coming for you. Jia Chen, Jia Chen with United Daily News Group Taiwan. Um, questions for Mr. Chen. <laughs> Yeah, um, the first question is, um, can you tell us the reason why TIVA is suspended for two years? And how do we solve the problem with pork and beef issue? And for the other um, panelists, well, all the panelists, um, Morris Chain is trying to meet up with Prime Minister Abe at APEC um, to ask for Japan's support for Taiwan to join the CPTPP. Um, what does Taiwan have to offer um, to gain the support from, China, from Japan? Thank you. Why don't you start, uh, Rupert? Oh, no, no, it was, it was, uh, was CC. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, on TIFA, I wouldn't say it's suspended. I mean, it has not uh, uh, been held uh, last year. Uh, last year, because there were, I mean, the, what we learned from the, uh, the, my government was like the U.S. does not have a counterpart in place. But then this year, uh, the acting assistant USDR traveled to Taiwan to did the uh, to do some preparatory work, uh, some groundwork. I think that the TIFA uh, is a platform for both governments to, to talk about the, the trade concerns, the outstanding issues. Normally, uh, the staff level, the working level, will, will have to prepare for that. We we will hold TIFA meeting when we have uh, some uh, substantive uh, result to report to, then we hold the council, the TIFA council meeting. And on the pork and beef, um, this is, uh, everybody under, everybody knows this is a very difficult and thorny issues. Uh, but uh, 
my government has the the uh, will to solve the issue, but we want to solve it uh, cautiously. We want to achieve the result. It would not do any good if we just simply uh, bump into the wall and then hit the head. It's not the result we want. So the government is moving very cautiously. Uh, as Rupert mentioned, uh, it's from the general public, uh, they think this is a food safety issues. Uh, from the U.S. side, they, they think this is a scientific issues. So they are obviously need a bridge up. And then uh, in the past administrations, uh, in came in the DPP first time of, uh, in the in the power, in second time the KMT in the power. Uh, the government always try to solve the issue, but uh, it just need to move uh, uh, intelligently and cautiously. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I think this is the value of a high-level dialogue. It gets to the problems with TIFA is that despite the problems that like we have with beef and pork, uh, instead of treating Taiwan differently than we do other trading partners, that is requiring them to resolve issues before we actually sit down to talk about the issues in some formal situation, that we have a high-level dialogue that will address these issues on a systemic basis, on a regular basis. I mean, look, we're talking about Xi Jinping and Donald Trump meeting uh, in Buenos Aires at the end of the month um, to talk about differences they have on, on trade. You know, we, we've dealt with the Chinese for many years over differences, but for some reason on Taiwan, we can't meet unless we've already have all the differences resolved. Uh, so I think that's why we, we hope we can do this. We can also address the issue that Rupert raised about moving the goalposts. It'd be harder to move the goalposts if you have a regular dialogue where you're, where you're addressing these problems on a regular basis. Um, the, the other question had to do with Taiwan, the CPTPP, and, uh, and I guess... Uh, getting Japan on board and what, what Taiwan can offer to Japan and others. Riley's expertise is actually Japan more than more than China and Taiwan's, and maybe he could start. And I think she also addressed the panel to everyone if, if Rupert would like to address it as well. Um, yeah, I, so I, I don't know if, it, if it's really as much, it's, it's weighing the costs, right? It's what can Taiwan offer that would offset the political costs of angering Beijing for Tokyo, and I don't know if there's actually an answer to that um, from an economic point of view. But I think from a value-based side, I think there's there's value in it from that. You know, um, building a relationship with other market economies, other <coughs> democracies, that sort of argument. Um, I, I think it's it's to be made. Obviously, anyone who makes a bilateral anything with Taiwan, they're gonna Beijing's gonna get upset. So. If you just sort of take that as a matter of fact, I think you can sort of proceed. And if the United States one day decided to bring uh, go back to the CPTPP, I think there would definitely be a, an option for us to be supportive of bringing Taiwan in too, and then other countries would follow suit. And, um, the idea of this paper with the economic dialogue, just like any free trade agreement, is sort of giving not just the United States but other countries the confidence to continue their engagement with Taiwan on either a bilateral or multilateral level. Robert, anything to add? Yeah, that's really well put. I, I you know, practically speaking, um, Abe will almost certainly tell, uh, tell Morris that the Fukushima issue has to be addressed, the food import issue has to be addressed. And then to, to play a wee bit off what Riley just said, Taiwan is a significant economy in the region. And to add it to what they're trying to do, if it's willing to adopt the, the, uh, the, the terms, um, would be a, a, a significant opportunity for all of them. So if they're looking to expand, Taiwan is an obvious partner to, to look for. 
but uh, it, it comes with with the with the politics of China. I, I remember when we were talking when the debate was raging about TPP generally, and the U.S. was still a part of it, and we were considering well, how do you get the right strategy to bring Taiwan on board? The concern was that the Chinese would actually look to pick off a country within the trade group that was vulnerable or that that perhaps had less exposure to the nuances of U.S.-Taiwan-China relations, perhaps a South American country, for example. Um, and uh, I still think that that's probably a concern. Let's face it, the Chinese are extremely effective in, in neutering ASEAN, for example, by getting the Cambodians and the Asians to, to, uh, to toe the line. So um, it's, a, it's a formula that China is quite expert at. On CPTPP, uh, actually, uh, my government has uh, conducted studies and then prepare legislatures in order to be compliant with the CPTPP, uh, looking for the opportunities to join. Uh, well, the rally mentioned the questions, uh, what about economic upset in China? Well, China is not part of the CPTPP as yet. So there's a tremendous room for Taiwan to be in, which will provide both geopolitic and the economic benefit to the members of the CPTPP. Uh, by include uh, Taiwan into CPTPP, that would in, that would uh, complete a missing link of the strategy, uh, starting from P4, then TPP, now CPTPP, and then consistent with the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. Thank you. Other We touch on Central News Agency Taiwan. I, I totally agree with what Walter you just mentioned. So my question is that even the U.S. and Japan have the difference that in trade, they at least still start to talk. So my question is that how will you suggest Taiwan or what kind of strategy that Taiwan should have to persuade the United States to at least to, to start the trade talk? Thank you. Um, well, I guess the question is, is what really sparked the U.S.-Japan economic dialogue to begin with? You know, what got that far? Um, I think a lot of people uh, saw the strong relationship that the Trump and Abe had as sort of the conductor for that one. Um, and sort of the, you know, the maintaining of the relationship, especially from the Japanese side. Um, you know, there's, Taiwan has, it can't really do that, right? Um, President Tsai can't maintain a good relationship with President Trump on any level. Um, so there's there's definitely a lot of hurdles, and so I think hopefully that's where my paper comes in <laughs> to sort of um, help uh, the White House realize the importance of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and building sort of the high-level economic dialogue, much like to what the U.S. and Japan had. Well, uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to also reply to what Walter asked about the, the steel tariff, okay? Look, uh, how U.S. solved the steel issues with other trading partners. With Korea, they have updated the course. With Canada and Mexico, they talked about USMCA. With the EU, Juncker came to town and agreed to talk with the U.S. administration. So uh, uh, that would very evident, uh, demonstrate what Walter said, a high-level economic dialogue is necessary. Uh, this, to, to put everything on the plate uh, with a political resolve to 
to uh, settle the issues and then to move forward rather than just a technical level remove one or two trade barriers we need to have a promotional and forward-looking uh, relations yeah that, that's a really good point because it also highlights the fact that uh, there are several other countries that have received exemptions from the steel tariffs and nego really negotiated exemptions so in the case of korea is one something's pending with mexico and canada Argentina, Brazil, they've all reached agreement. And I think you could attribute the fact that Taiwan hasn't partly to the fact that they don't have a regular dialogue. And the, the, the concerns of Taiwan are not reaching the appropriate people or appropriate level within the administration, it would seem to be. Yeah. Do you have anything to well, add? I, I, you know, far smarter people than I have, have wrestled with this issue, have had a, had a breakthrough the the, the the, the agricultural issues between the US and Taiwan. It strikes me that it's really gonna have to be some sort of arrangement which both sides sort of take a step at the same time with some sort of understanding about what the implications are for that for that step or that sequence to move through um, the agricultural issue. I think the agricultural issues have become a, a personal issue for the United States or certainly some here. And I, I, don't, I don't see us um, in the absence of senior oversight, uh, really high level, I'm talking the president, I'm talking Pompeo, Bolton, Lighthizer, really deciding, listen, there's a, there's a strategic reason for doing a trade deal with Taiwan. They need to fix this agricultural issue. Um, we need to make some sort of accommodation with them so that we can, we can take a step together where they, where they address that and where, and when, and where we make a, a commitment to elevate this narrative and, and, and dialogue to, to a, 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 the appropriate level. Um, it sounds great in theory, mm -hmm. but uh, you know the fact of the matter is, is that, that it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to do. Yeah, if 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 the Taiwanese knew that at the end of it there would be something, right? There would be a commitment to a high level dialogue, right? We had the same debate during the TPP process. It was if if you could guarantee Taiwan that they could start the process, then they can make some sort of compromise. But to ask them to make a compromise, a very difficult domestic political compromise, in the absence of some assurance that at the end there will be a bigger, a greater good that we're all working towards is a difficult proposition. When we were doing the, the, the push for TPP, we were focused in on the USTBC and some others were focused in on the, the statement the Japanese and the, and the Obama White House made when Japan first signaled that it had an interest in inclusion in the TPP. It was, it was actually about three paragraphs. But it rep in my view, you, you wouldn't have to but change Japan for Taiwan in most of the press release and maybe a few other things for it to, 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 to represent the kind of political commitment that the U.S. could make, I think, that could, could help move this forward as a relatively simple statement of intent from the leadership of the United States and perhaps a model for Taiwan and the U.S. moving forward. Other questions for right down in front there. Hi, um, thank you very much for the discussion. I'm now Aoyama, a staff writer correspondent for the Asahi Shimbun uh, Japan's newspaper. I would like to know in detail are uh, the 
perspectives on the U.S.-China dispute of the general public in Taiwan. I, I mean, uh, Japan and uh, Taiwan uh, have a lot uh, in uh, in common with regard to the U.S.-China dispute. The business community in Japan are so uh, basically Japan largely shares the goal of uh, encouraging China's China's uh, better behavior. Are uh, they want to correct? Uh, China's unfair trade practices, but uh, they have been very disappointed uh, with the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs, and uh, they are also uh, threatened with auto tariffs now. And uh, they are concerned that the uh, supply chain will be disrupted. So uh, how the uh, business community and the general public in Taiwan perceive uh, the U.S.-China dispute right now? And uh, the second question is uh, about UMC. I was very surprised to know that the uh, Department of Justice indicted uh, not only the uh, the PRC state-owned company, but also uh, UMC and three uh, Taiwanese uh, people. So how are, uh, uh, is it accepted in, in, in Taiwan? How the report, the, how that in, indictment is accepted in Taiwan? I think those questions are mostly to you. Okay. Uh, I, I think the uh, the question uh, is surrounding the U.S.-China trade confrontation or dispute, and how Taiwan's general public and the business community perceive the situation. Well, uh, the we the, the uh, of course this is a big concern to Taiwan uh, because. Uh, China is our number one trade partner, and U.S. is number two. Uh, in terms of uh, key technology source, U.S. is the major and the foremost one. Uh, in terms of our investment destination, it's either U.S. or China. So it's very closely intertwined and linked uh, economic situation. Well, uh, for the uh, Rupert mentioned about supply chain shift, which I agree, uh, Taiwanese uh, business people in mainland China, they started to, to think about uh, the shift uh, supply chains because of the investment environment deteriorate. Uh, a couple, uh, several years ago, start, China started, the uh, labor costs start to rise, the environmental costs start to rise, and some of the social security requirement increase. Uh, and uh, some uh, some business people, they, they think about they, they need to uh, hedge the risk also, uh, or they need to diversify their market and supply chain. And so that was uh, what Rupert mentioned uh, when he met with our officials and, and Taichung officials. So uh, the business community, they, they uh, see the U.S.-China trade conflict. Uh, now they, I think people now accept that that's a reality and it's coming and probably will not end soon. So people will have to respond to that rather than wait and see. So uh, especially after this midterm election, we will see that is happening. And on the UMC case, I rather not to comment on something is under judicial investigation as I work for the government. Uh, but uh, my government work with uh, US government uh, in terms of trade policy. I'll definitely comment <laughs> on, that, on that latter issue. I. I you know, just to play off some of the, the, the points I made in, in uh, when I had an opportunity to make some, some formal 
formal comments. <clears throat> I think it's it's a, it's a case that, that absolutely bears watching, and I think it does have domestic political implications. Micron is the largest employer, foreign employer in Taiwan, and but it, is it a Taiwan company? It, well, a bit, but I mean, it 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 hires thousands and thousands of Taiwan people, um, many of them at a good wage. And uh, I don't know how it matches up from an employment standpoint with UMC, but I'd wager that they're at least comparable uh, in respect to the number of employees that they have. And yet already you're seeing UMC play a public relations game in which they are trying to paint, they're painting Micron as a foreign company. And UMC is the domestic company and the domestic company's interests are being hurt by a foreign company. But Micron has significant employment and investment interests in the Taiwan market. Um, and then, of course, you have the, 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 the broader, more sort of geostrategic issue of, of trade secrets and IP that we're playing with in respect to China. So I, I, I do think that this, this has significant life domestically within Taiwan. And I would like to reiterate again my fear about uh, what might what may happen with the trade secrets legislation in the in the parliament in the Lifa UN, and whether or not companies like UMC and MediaTek will will be successful in having legislators reopen that legislation and have it weakened, because I believe that that may cause oh no that would cause the, that would cause bilateral issues with the United States. I hope that helped a bit. I wanted to um, I wanted to come back to something um, and, and, and forgive me if this question is a little bit vague because I'm still trying to formulate it but I but I notice a difference between what we've talked about in terms of investment from Taiwan into China in particular and the changes that are occurring in the in the uh, in the supply chains at least as regards investment but the numbers on the trade side still show a great degree of dependence of Taiwan on China and, and even a continued growth in, in the level of trade and the percentage of trade that uh, Taiwan-China uh, trade represents overall for Taiwan. So how do we understand these two things? Is one more important than the other uh, for Taiwan? Um, is one more important than other to our conversations about supply chains? Um, there's so much focus on the investment side that um, I, I think sort of the public debate loses, uh, risks losing focus on this continuing trade dependence. Does that, does that set the issue up to at least well enough to address? I mean, so, so what matters more? Why does each of those matter and, and why? Oh, um, that reminds me of uh, a story one of my old economic professors used to tell where he, uh, he owned a grocery store, and um, one day his cash register comes up to him and asks, um, you know, am I your most valued employee? And then, you know, the butcher heard that and came up and said, wait, is he or am I? And then the stock boy came up and asked, am I the most valued employee? So um, at least to say, I mean, it, it's all important to a certain degree. Everyone's important, um, both trade and investment, imports and exports, uh, I mean, all these support jobs, they support um, wage growth, they, you know, the supply chains are forever changing uh, to a certain degree. So, um, 
you know, the, the rise in trade is certainly uh, an important factor for, you know, uh, growth stability, but so is investment. Um, the divestment, you know, as Rupert was saying, is, is a good thing um, to a certain degree. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily want to say one is more important than the other, but perhaps uh, someone else. Well, well let, me, let me ask you this way, maybe to help clarify for, for CC and Rupert. Is, so is trade a lagging indicator in this way? So, so can we expect, because of the changing supply patterns, could we, could we, with regard to investment, could we expect the trade pattern to also change? Well, Walter, uh, I, I assume you were asking how the, the U.S.-China trade confrontation affect the trade between Taiwan and mainland China and Taiwan foreign trade as a whole. Uh, in that regard, uh, the, from this year until from January to to, uh, to October, our export to uh, uh, mainland China, to U.S. and to uh, Japan all reached the, the highest uh, growth. Well, to to Japan uh, increased twelve percent, to China and Hong Kong is ten percent, and to uh, U.S. is seven point two percent. Some analysts uh, is of the view this might be because of a front loading, because the, the, the way U.S. conduct its trade sanction against China is piece by piece. First of all, we have uh, uh, 50 billion, and then we have uh, two, two, uh, 200 billion, and then 200 billion waiting next year. And then uh, first of all, you have a 10% on the 200 billion, and then if nothing can be moved forward, Next year will become 25%. So in this regard, uh, people, they, they create a tendency for business people to front load it. I, I mean, they, first, they foresee something's coming. Mm -hmm. They do the things quickly. Mm -hmm. It's also uh, the same situation with the cargo business because of steel tariff. Cargo business hit the climax uh, mm -hmm. in, in summer, uh, in the, uh, earlier this year. Okay? So that's one thing. And second thing you talk about supply chain is I have some anecdotal uh, uh, facts. Is when like when I was stationed in Singapore in early 2000, and then uh, some of uh, our Taiwanese community, Taiwan, we have a Taiwanese chamber of commerce there, and uh, some of the leaders are, move, are leaving. I say, where are you going? He said, I'm going to China. I say, why? He said, because my client, which is failed at the time, is going to open a factory. In Shenzhen, so I need to go. So that's a story. Mm -hmm. So that's where Taiwanese investment in mainland China they follow their supply chain customers. Mm -hmm. So now the the U.S. administration is trying to disrupt this this supply chain. Mm -hmm. I I think something will will happen coming uh, mm -hmm. will follow suit because the U.S. Uh, is still the leader of the the manufacturing and the market. Mm -hmm. So that that would argue that. Trade is a lagging indicator behind invest change in investment patterns, and in that we would we will see by virtue of these changing supply chains, we will see a change in uh, trade patterns as well. It sounds like what you're saying. I agree. Yeah, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, other questions? Okay, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for being here, Rupert, CC, uh, Riley. Really appreciate it. Thank you very Thank you. much.